So as we get started, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 14. And we're going to talk about a few things together, church family. All right, so as we get started, number one, I want to encourage you to come back tonight, 6 o'clock. And if you have questions from what I've talked about this morning, some of you are like, oh man, we're getting started already. Yeah, if you have questions, let us know. You can fill that out. We'll do our best to answer. But I've been a pastor since 1994. And I want you to know, I, I definitely have to live by faith in the strange new world of youth ministries these days. I mean, just youth ministries. It's way different than when I started 28 years ago. By example, TikTok was something a clock did. It's like, okay. So I've entitled this message, Gospel Reset, Living with Confidence in a World of Uncertainty. And I want you to follow along with notes. So also on the app, you can click the Sunday icon, click that, notes will pull up, or we have, you know, paper copies for you. I want you to know that the world we live in today is also different than 1982 when I was 10 years old. In 1982, I was 10. A dollar today only buys 32% of what it could buy back in 1982. Now, how many of you want more of those 1982 dollars? You know what I'm saying? The inflation rate in 1982 was 6.16%. The current inflation rate this year is 9.1%. And last year it was around 7%. When I went to buy ice cream a couple nights ago, I longed for the 25 cent cones you used to be able to buy at McDonald's. Anybody remember those? Okay, compared to my $3.79 McFlurry, which I don't know why only gets filled up like two-thirds full, full every time. Can anybody relate? Even McDonald's is getting expensive. I'm a youth pastor. Come on, work with me, people. Work with me. Speaking of food and the cost of food, 2022 saw a rapid increase in food prices and shortages of food supplies all around the world. And you all know the various reasons for that. And of course, no government is perfect. We have all kinds of governmental overreach. By the way, did you know the government has a nonprofit sector called the Brookings Institute that tracks all the regulatory changes that are made each year to the everyday lives of all Americans? You can actually see the laws that are being passed or rescinded that affect your freedom or give you more freedom. It's the Brookings.edu, and you can check that out. There's also been some financial issues. If you had a portfolio in the stock market since last September, your total value of your investment has probably gone down around 20%. And does anyone really know if we're heading into a recession or not? And everybody's like, we are. Main point, it is really hard to live with confidence in a world of, of uncertainty. More than any of these things, maybe it's just me, Jonathan, but I'm concerned morally for what we are facing these days. Number one, I am concerned morally with technology. In the 80s, taking photos was a pain. You remember those little cameras? And nobody knew what a selfie was. Nobody ever thought of taking one of those portable little you know, Kodak cameras, turning around and going... 
Now you post a selfie or a picture of yourself in seconds, minutes, hours, and days later, and anywhere from 18,000 to 25,000 people see that picture or photo, whether they knew you or not. The moral issues with the change in technology just regarding moving images and time consumption are staggering. Some people are spending six to nine hours a day on their phones. Think about it. And now, go back to 1982. Think about if somebody would have told you that in 1982 that people were going to spend six to eight hours a day on the phone hanging on the wall with the rotisserie dial. And Okay, I digress. I'm concerned about you. Number two, I'm concerned morally with ideology. Sin is prevalent in our culture, and our culture no longer tries to hide it. The acceptance of homosexuality and transgender issues and the gender identity confusion on what a man is and what a woman is is creating issues for us that are only just beginning, especially things that our children will have to deal with long after those of us that are older are gone. We have tons of issues with cultural ideology today. Number three, I'm concerned morally with ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the fancy term for the study of the church, the called out ones, the ecclesia. Specifically, that's an assembly of professing believers. Our church geographically is an assembly of professing believers located on the east side of Des Moines, called out by the name of Grace Church. We are organized and committed to doing God's will together based on the New Testament command to go and make disciples across the street and around the world. We do that by two ordinances and the biblical design for leadership through elders. We are Grace Church, that's ecclesiology. So for instance, related to ecclesiology, here are a few things I am concerned about. There are many, and maybe this is just me. If the church is a body, like Pastor Marty talked about so well last week, and yes, those that were here are thinking the same thing, I will never think about a duck the same way again, will you? Okay. If our church is a body, and this body needs one another— How can people be a part of two bodies? How can one eye serve on two bodies? How can one ear serve on two heads? Like, how's that even work? The great moral concern that I have with the church is that we carry a consumer mindset into the very place that should be family, and some are taking what they can for their family from as many bodies or churches as they want. That's just one example of my concern with ecclesiology. Here's another one. If you are a leg, but you're gone eight weeks, and or you're serving in another ministry in a different body, not Grace Church, but you also serve here, then when you're gone, we have no leg to stand on. But I digress. These are just some of my concerns. 
I'm concerned about a lot of things, the economy, social, moral issues, the state and condition of the church in America, the church we're in. People are threatening Supreme Court justices in their homes. People are driving cars into crowds and walking into schools to intentionally take lives. We have some very big problems and concerns that can create a huge level of insecurity in our hearts and our souls and our minds. Can anybody agree? And if you're looking for some answers on what to do with your worry, if you're wondering what God has to say to a soul discouraged, and if you're wondering if everything is going to be okay, I've got some very good news for you this morning. The Word of God speaks to the very things that we're facing in our culture just like it did 2,000 years ago. In fact, many of you right now are in John chapter 14. This is our text this morning. This is what we're going to look at. The disciples were in the same position as us. They were very concerned. They were full of worry. And Jesus had to pull over to the side of the road and park to address their uncertainty and concerns. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's stand together as we We read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 together. This morning, we're not going to do it antific, you know, back and forth. We're just all going to read together. And we'll begin in John 14, verse 1. It's up on the screen. Let's share it together. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Go ahead and have a seat. So maybe from home or here as you're sitting, you're asking the questions, how do I get over these inner feelings I have of anxiety about our culture or about technology or just worry in general about the state and conditions of things, either in my home or my church or my culture. Jesus, number one, gives us four answers. And here's the first answer from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Number one, Jesus asks us to trust in a person. Jesus asks us to trust in a person. Listen carefully. All the disciples had given up their livelihood to follow Jesus. Now all this talk of impending death was beginning to create fear and tension for them. Worry was beginning to creep into an already bleak situation with the religious leaders and the future of these Jesus followers. Then Jesus, knowing their thoughts, their trouble, and their worry, says these words right to them in person. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. I want you to note his encouragement to them begins with a negative. Do not. Isn't this how it is almost all the time with us? Our intentions are always to do what is right, but we have to be reminded what not 
to do. We want to trust God and fear him, but like Peter, we begin to look around and take our eyes off of the Savior, and then we begin to sink. Or like Joshua, we see giants in the land that we're supposed to be possessing and live as salt and light, but we just can't see around these huge obstacles before us, and we begin to fear and worry. And then we are reminded this morning of the crisp, clear words that come from the voice of Jesus that he shared to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. A couple thoughts on that. In the midst of our insecure or uncertainty, let's not miss that we always need a reminder. The fear that we let happen could have been avoided. Jesus, with his own words, gives us in the instructions, he says, do not let, which very simply means it is a choice. We can choose not to fear, not to be troubled. Jesus' answer for the things that are troubling his disciples' heart, that are troubling your heart, his answer for uncertainty, his answers for fears and anxiety are answered in a person. He's asking his disciples the same thing he's asking you this morning. Do you trust me? Now, this is in direct contrast of what the world teaches on a daily basis. You're familiar with it. I'm sure you are. The world says, trust in medicine. The world says, trust in science. And I'm ready to be done with that last three-year experience. The world says, trust in technology. The world says, trust in government. We gotcha. The world says, trust in yourself and your abilities. Jesus comes along with a stark contrast and says, I have the real answer for you. The answer is me. Do you trust me? Now, Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he said it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then here's that reminder again. Lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Dear friend, the answer to your heart's deepest fears and my heart's deepest fears are not found scrolling on social media at the absent-minded portions of your day when you don't know what to do. They're not found on Instagram, and they're certainly not found at Costco, although there are a lot of things that can be found at Costco. It's not found in research. It's not found in a planet yet to be discovered. The direct answer, Jesus gave his closest friends in the midst of their greatest need was to trust him. How simple is that? And yet we make it so complicated, don't we? Jesus was asking people, catch this, who had been schooled in Deuteronomy law, this very simple thing. He was telling them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And he was asking them to remember John 10.30 when Jesus expressed his full authority on earth and said, I and the Father are one. Today, this morning, I believe too many people have mistraced, misplaced their trust in God with a cheap counterfeit. Now, like, okay, Pastor John, what are you talking about? We've misplaced the trust in God in a cheap counterfeit? Listen carefully. Your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. So, if the object of your faith is government, what happens when that fails? If the object of your faith is medicine, what happens when it can't cure you? If the object of your faith is the economy, what happens when it goes crazy and the dollar isn't worth anything? 
If the object of your faith is a spiritual mentor and not Jesus and God himself, what happens when that mentor, he or she fails? If the object of your faith is yourself, what, happen when you can't help, what happens when you can't help you? So it should come as no surprise that the answer to the disciples' uncertainty, the answer to our fears in our culture is Jesus Christ himself. So do you trust him? Now I have to break down one more part because I get stuck in these areas. Jesus said, trust in God, trust also in, in me. Is there a better answer to all of the uncertainty and fears today? Is there a better answer? Thinkers, I'm asking you. And, and here's what I want you to know. This is where I get to. Is wealth keeping us from trusting him? Because there's so much of it. Is comfort keeping us from trusting him? Because I'll tell you what, I'd rather sit in my lazy boy and be one of those, a lazy boy, than to go out and serve sometimes. How about this? Is your past hurt what you're using to rest on and you, in strange ways, won't let go of it and that is keeping you from trusting God? For instance, you had a bad experience in a ministry and you're like, nope, I had a bad experience in the church. I'm not going to do anything more. Well, I have news for you. This is God's agency filled with imperfect people. So you're letting an imperfect person keep you from serving a perfect God? Not a good answer. And I know full well I could have been one of those people that hurt you unintentionally. And I'm sorry if I did. I don't want that to keep you from trusting God. Or is bitterness keeping you from trusting him? There's just that root that you keep holding on to that you don't want to let go because it gives you the edge. You think it gives you the purpose to keep on living because you've been wrong. But I'm telling you this morning, let go of that bitterness that you have in your heart so that the trust of the Lord Jesus Christ can fill your soul and release you from the pain that you feel on a daily basis. And I'm not talking about a knee or a hip. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. <laughs> I think of it this way. We get in a car and trust it to get us from A to B. I would say most of our cars. And we go to the dentist and we trust them with our mouth. And we go to the bank and we trust most of them again with our money. Why on earth would we let anything keep us from trusting our Savior? So the greatest answer to fear and uncertainty is Jesus Christ. My first question is, do you trust him? Number two, it's found in the text as well. Jesus asks us to believe in a place. Jesus asks us to believe in a place. Look in the passage, John 14, 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, family, I find it fascinating that Jesus' definition of heaven to his troubled disciples is my Father's house. And I get it. I get the description. Here's why. There was something about going to my grandparents' home for Christmas each year in South Dakota. I know my mom will probably have tears on her eyes as I read the rest of this. I loved the cinnamon rolls that grandpa served to us kids before breakfast and sometimes a second one when grandma wasn't looking. Can I get an amen? 
My grandma would always call me sweetie and pinch my cheek. And of course, she wasn't a fan of us running through the house and would say, slow down, slow down, or go play outside. And then I kept running through the house. I loved going to my grandparents' house as a kid. It holds a special charm and wonder for me as I associate it yearly with the sounds of Christmas, laughter, and presents. And if I could go there again with them both alive, I would in a heartbeat. By Jesus calling heaven my father's house, he is using the strongest language of the greatest comfort for the weary wanderer longing for rest and home. By example, here at Grace Church, we call heaven home in one of the events we do. We have a Sunday called Home for Christmas. It's a remembrance of those loved ones lost during the year who had a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we celebrate their home going to heaven. If God is our Father, and we have a relationship with His Son, Jesus, when we die, we are going to be with Him in that home. Even 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are confident, I say, and would pre- prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. If you need a little bit more description of what it's like, listen as I share Dr. David Jeremiah and his view of my father's house. He says, the language of home is powerful. And although home means something different to every person, it's a longing we all share. Home, no matter how humble, is the place where we begin life. It's the place we must inevitably leave to build adult life. For instance, I just did that about four weeks ago. I gave my daughter to a man to begin a new home. She left my home. Uh, And he goes on, And the yearning to recapture that basic security and sense of belonging remains in us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in our hearts, and that's heaven, our ultimate home. I have one just other quick thought. In North Carolina, there's a mansion called the Biltmore House. It has over 250 rooms, including 35 bedrooms and 43 bathrooms. Have you guys ever heard of this? Okay, all right, sure. Biltmore House. Compared to the home that Jesus is building, the Biltmore Mansion just wouldn't even compare. Heaven is perfect because Jesus is building it, and he's building it for you personally. No one built the Biltmore Mansion with you in mind. In heaven, we'll live with God, and he will live with us. Revelation 21, the Biltmore Mansion wasn't designed for you to live with anybody. Heaven was paid for with the blood of the owner's son as a love gift to all who would come through him. There went the comparison. Do you believe in that place? Do you have a room at that place? Do you long for that place? C.S. Lewis said it like this. In truth, our yearning for heaven is the secret signature of each soul. It's the thing we've desired all along and will continue to desire even when we don't realize it's the thing we most want. In the midst of uncertainty, Jesus asked, number one, for us to put our trust in a person, have you? And number two, he also asked us to believe in a place called heaven, do you? Number three, third answer he gave to uncertainty is this. Jesus asked us to believe in a promise. 
Jesus asks us to believe in a promise. The scripture says it like this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You also know the way to the place I am going. In the words of this text, Jesus himself makes a promise to his disciples. This verse speaks of Jesus' imminent return, meaning he could come back any day. He's basically saying to his troubled disciples, I'm not going away from you. I'm not leaving you. I promise that what I'm doing is for you. What I'm making for you will be for you. His promise to return is not just unique to this text. I'm giving you one among many, actually two among many. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's also Acts 1, 10 through 11 that says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I know what some will say. There's much hope in trusting a future that Jesus has guaranteed, but there's still a daily battle. It's hard to get over the difficulties that I have. Look at the answer Jesus gave to the daily concern. He said, you know the way to the place where I am going. Watch this. Jesus tells them, you know how to get to heaven. You know how to have a relationship with me. You know what I have told you. I know the disciples got it in that moment because John, later on in his writing of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, says this. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And of course, when he was with them a final time at the top of the mountain— and he was getting ready to commission them. He gave them everything they needed to fight the daily battles when he said, let this verse comfort your soul. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. So number one, Jesus asks us to believe in a person, to trust in a person. Number two, Jesus asks us to believe in a place. Number three, Jesus asks us to believe in a promise. I'd like to show you this picture here to wrap up the promise. We were getting ready to leave on the trip on Wednesday. Yeah, some of you already know what that means. Getting ready to leave on a trip on Wednesday. One of the students, I just finished putting the bow tie on this message, ready to go, and in walks this student wearing a shirt with we don't really know what Jesus looked like, okay, but this is Jesus' image, okay? And it says BRB. You know what that stands for? Be right. Thank you. How cool is that? Even our students are wearing shirts reminding them, Jesus is coming back. It's a promise that you can count on. All right, number four. Jesus asks us to believe in a plan. So, John 14, 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All right, so can we just stop here for a second and just all agree? Thomas said what all the rest of us were thinking, right? We can't criticize the guy for feeling uncertain, asking the question again, and directly contradicting what Jesus had just said. Look, our kids do this all the time when they actually want to get it right. They're like, what did you say again? And then what do we say? Well, I just told you what I did, you know? Jesus answers 
his question with one of the verses most quoted in all of the Bible. A verse that you can hold on to, they held on to, in the midst of their uncertain times and troubled hearts. It's this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Can I just stop for a second and tell you what's going on? Thomas wanted a map. He wanted a GPS. Today, he wanted Siri with turn-by-turn directions in a British voice. Turn left, right? And Jesus' answer was not what he expected to hear. Jesus said, I am the map. I am your GPS. I'm your way to heaven. I will take you there and ultimately I am the journey, you take it with me. Now, I was trying to figure out how to capture this thought the best I possibly could, and I'd like you to see this picture up on the screen here. This is a picture of a beautiful hidden gem in Iowa, and all of a sudden, the horseman's antennas went up because they go to all those places, all right? This is a hidden gem in Iowa. It's called Lake Miami. Lake Miami. Now, when I was a pastor in Oskaloosa, Iowa, we didn't have cell phones with maps on them. Just think about that for a second. We had an event at Lake Miami for the church, and I had no clue how to get there. If you look up, even right now you can, if you look up Oskaloosa and Lake Miami on your phones, you'll see what I mean. There is no direct route. I asked a close friend of mine, Alvin Westerkamp, how do I get there? He said to me, go right at the post office, go left at the big oak, and when you get to the big red barn, take a left or something like that. And if you got to grandma's house, you know you got too far. Uh, you know? Again, it was something like that. Now watch. I looked at him. He looked at me. And he said the words that gave my troubled directions my uncertainty about actually making the event the absolute most beautiful thing I could have heard. He said, just meet me at the church at five o'clock and I will take you with us. <laughs> Alvin and Kathy became the way to the lake. Friends, Jesus is the way to life. When I got in the car with Alvin and Kathy, I didn't ask them, have you ever been there before? For he would have never offered to take me if he'd never been there before. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides, because they had no idea what they were saying or where they were going. When I got in the car, I didn't say to Alvin and Kathy, can I trust that you will actually take us to Lake Miami? Because... Others from the church were meeting us there, and we were all looking forward to the fellowship. It was about the people that were part of the called-out ones in Oskaloosa named the Fellowship Bible Church that were waiting for us at the destination. When I got in the car, I didn't say to Alvin and Kathy, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go, because when we actually put our trust in them and got in the car, they left because they already had a path, and they already had a purpose motivating them to leave. Friends, why do we doubt that Jesus has a plan and a purpose and a direction for our lives? He's been there before. He knows the way. He knows what we're going to face. He has the absolute ability to comfort. He has the absolute ability to guide. And yet we still many times over try to take that steering wheel and steer away from Lake Miami. 
because we think we know the way. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to ask you four questions as we conclude. In a survey conducted last October, this is October 2021, by Probe Ministries, they surveyed almost 4,000 born-again Christians. And they asked this question, is Jesus Christ the only way to God? 70% of believers that were questioned said there was more than just Jesus Christ as the way. My first question to you is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to life, truth, and heaven? Acts 4.12 says this. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no wiggle room in that verse. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So the first question I have for you this morning is, do you believe with your whole heart that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Question number two. Today, for the first time, do you need to trust and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died, buried, rose again, and is the only way to God, and you need to begin a relationship with him for the very first time? You realize that you feel uncertain because you don't have a certain leader in your life, and you need that leader, the one and only way, the truth and the life. If that's you this morning, and you know you need that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time, would you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Anyone to praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Okay? Number three. You're here this morning. Hang with me. The head bowed, eyes closed. Just keep distractions at bay. Number three. Do you have a habitual pattern of doubting Jesus and not trusting him? Most believers would walk into the building this morning and say no, but just let me explain for a second. You find yourself complaining about what you're going through or criticizing others for what is really your issue. You find yourself blaming God for a health issue or a bitterness issue or a relationship issue, and you realize now for the first time that's not their problem, it's your problem. You realize you have a trust issue. And you want to do something about it this morning. You want to start trusting the Lord instead of yourself. Would you raise your hand? Amen. Oh my goodness. Amen. Praise the Lord. Number four, last one. Do you live like Jesus is coming back for his church? Or do you feel like you have infinite amounts of time to do whatever you feel like doing? Before you answer, I would suggest that we begin reorganizing our daily weekly, monthly, and yearly schedules to reflect an eternal value and an eternal mission. Can I ask you to consider, would you consider placing a greater emphasis on his body, the church? Would you consider giving up some athletic things or some pleasure things or some personal things to give greater emphasis on your eternal family, the one that you will be spending eternity with? If you say this morning, you know what, I've got a few things out of whack and I would like to refocus on Jesus's return by reprioritizing and reorganizing a little bit in my home, would you please raise your hand? Oh my goodness, praise the Lord. Let's close in prayer together, my dear family.
Lord, you saw these, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and the things that they are thinking and feeling and processing this morning from the words of your Son. Lord, you're not surprised at their response, and you're overjoyed at their willingness. Lord, I pray that those who wanted to come to faith would do so this morning. Lord, I pray that those who are struggling with doubt would tackle that thing by not letting their heart be discouraged and putting their trust in you. Lord, I pray that we would live each day reorganizing our priorities and our future to reflect your values and mission. Lord, thank you for speaking to your people from your word this morning, and I pray that it would produce much fruit for your kingdom. In your son's holy name, amen.